let's take our Bibles. Let's head to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, as we continue, we're in a series, if you just joined with us, that I wanted to take a break from the family series because so many people are on vacation. I thought we'd deal with something that is really pertinent, and that is dealing with the unity in the body of Christ. Now, if you didn't get sermon notes, the fellows are moving through and giving you that, so you can follow along. We're going to be in Matthew 5, but let me take you back into Bible history for just a moment. The book of Acts gives us a lot of different details of what happened in the early church. We find out how they did worship service. We find out how they dealt with different issues in the church and things of that sort. One of the overriding and repeated themes is that they did things in one accord or they were of one mind. We read in Acts 2, and all them that believed were together. They had all things come. They continued daily with one accord in the temple, and that was during that time where they could still have that daily type of fellowship. The persecution wasn't on, so they could use the temple proper. In Acts 4, the mul- four it says, the multitude of them that believed were of one heart, one soul, neither said any of them that out of the things that he possessed was his own. And so they're helping out one another with great charity and compassion and helpfulness in doing that. We read in Acts 5, they were all in one accord on Solomon's porch. Now it's interesting if you mark down these passages, and if you go back and look at the passages, you will find after each one of the instances where it talks about this, it also talks about many different souls getting saved. With the unity, it increased and enhanced their evangelism as they were reaching out. Now I'm not saying that the New Testament church didn't have difficulties, that the New Testament church didn't have differences of opinions at times. In fact, we read in Acts chapter 6 that there was a group that were very upset. They didn't think their widows were getting the same amount of charity and help that the others were getting, and so they were very, very bothered by that, and it created some tense moments in the church. It ended up coming that their resolution was, we need more people involved in doing the charitable uh, work of the church, so they elected deacons at that point. We read in Acts chapter 15 that there was a gergamus. That is, there was a real intense time that happened that the church had a difference of opinions. What should the Gentiles who are getting saved, what should they be required to to do? Should they be baptized? They would all say yes. But after that, should they follow some of the rituals and the, the Jewish habits and traditions and customs? And it developed into a pretty strong debate that they were arguing pretty intensely in Acts chapter 15 until they came to a conclusion. We also have in Acts 15 that there was a personal conflict that arose between Barnabas and Paul, and it wasn't because they didn't get along. They had already gone on a, a couple missionary or on one missionary journey before. They've been um, working together for a period of time in the Church of Antioch. But the issue was the nephew of Barnabas. Should John Mark, who last time they went on a missions trip, he stopped in the middle of the trip. They didn't explain why, but Paul didn't like that he stopped. And so Paul is thinking, I'm not going to take him again. Barnabas is saying, let's give him a second chance. And it says that the division between them grew so intense that they decided to go their separate ways, and instead of continuing to work together in one mission, they would each take their own separate missionary trips. John Mark went with Barnabas and eventually recovered and did well. Paul started taking Silas and Timothy and some of the others, and we know their story as well. So the point is that these New Testament Testament believers, they had unity, but they did have difficulty. What they did in the middle of their differences is they didn't let it deteriorate to a point where it became with personal angst and animosity and the personal attacks upon one another. They dealt with the issues properly. They probably started back in Matthew chapter 5. How do you deal with problems? How do you deal with issues? Now, I've preached this a couple times before over the years, but I think it's in this series it behooves us to go back and talk 
talk about what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. If there is differences, how do we deal with them? If there are conflicts, what do we do about them? In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is going to be very specific, and again, there's other passages that build upon it, but let's lay the foundation once again. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says these comments down in the middle of his Sermon on the Mount, starting with verse 21. You have heard that it was said by them of old time that you shall not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has ought against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, go thy way, and first be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly. while you are in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver you to a judge, and the judge deliver you to the officer, and you be cast into a prison. Verily I say, you shall, not, you shall by no means come out thence till you have paid the uttermost farthing. And then he goes on and talks about another issue. Now that, that may not make sense, but it does if we take a few minutes and talk about it. Jesus in this text is laying out some very important principles. He is saying, number one, and this is important for us to catch. He is saying there are times when our anger may be appropriate. Now I know that's true because Jesus displayed anger just, just in his own life when he goes after the temple, cha- the money changers in the temple. He is angry enough to flip over the tables, tables, use a whip and chase them out, stand at the door for the rest of the day according to the Gospel of Mark and not let any of the money changers back in and basically takes over in righteous indignation. We know as well that Paul writes under inspiration of the Spirit, be angry and yet sin not. So there's moments, there's occasion when anger is an appropriate response. It could be because of some sinful action or deed that is done. It could be a situation where God is being defied, where God is being um, put down, where God is being denounced, diminished in some sort. Such as, do you remember in the Bible, the character who hears Goliath using the Lord's name and he runs out and and he challenges him? In righteous indignation, David gets out there and says, you know, the God that I'm serving, and yet you're calling him names and you're, you're tearing him down. And so David responded in a proper way at that time. Harm in innocent people being hurt. Peoples who don't deserve to be neglected or harmed or hit or beaten or bruised or prejudiced statements made against them. There's the times in scriptures that if we read in scriptures properly, there should be, it should arouse us when baby Christians are stumbled. It should arouse us when all of a sudden somebody is hurting the body of Christ. Jesus put it this way in Matthew chapter 18. If somebody harms the little ones, they ought to have a millstone tied about their neck and thrown in the deep depths of the sea. So Jesus is very adamant about the idea that we should be willing to stand up and to be moved to the point that in righteous anger we are going to resist, we are going to refuse, we are going to you know, do something about innocence being hurt, about children being hurt, about baby Christians being misled, to uh, put astray, where we contend for the faith, where there's emotions saying we're going to stand for truth. But even then, even when we have those moments where we get a little bit riled up, we need to keep our anger in control like Jesus did. We need to do what Paul said, be ye angry and yet sin not. And don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. So there may be moments when there's anger and it's appropriate, but it's what do we do? How do we respond in those moments? Jesus in this text is talking about not about those, uh, the idea that all anger is wrong. He says it very clearly. He says in the text where he says that you who are angry with your brother without a cause... 
And so in this passage, he's not saying anger is wrong. He is saying unjustified anger is what he's dealing with. Anger without a cause. So the point is, there are times when anger may be appropriate. However, what he's dealing with is the majority of the times. When our anger is inappropriate, when it's wrong, when it's without a cause, as he says. That would be those times when all of a sudden we're angry because, well, we're angry because something is done that we don't like and it's not against the Bible. We might be upset over something like somebody has taken my seat. Somebody has cut me off. Somebody has, you know, you know, they've put the, they've, they've taken the label off the tag and I'm standing and standing and standing in line at the store and I'm really upset. Somebody has, you know, not talked to me the way that I think they should talk to me. It's reasons that, you know, our, our comfort is disturbed. I'm really angry because the air conditioning broke down. Nobody fault, nobody's fault, but I'm angry at whoever runs the air conditioner. They couldn't do anything about it, but I'm mad at them. I'm mad at, you know, I'm mad at somebody downtown that the lights in Lebanon, they're on the fritz, they're not working, so we're mad at the city government because the lights got blown out by a storm. Not that they could control the storm, but we're mad at them. We're mad at the utility company because the power has gone out and they still haven't got to my house and got my utility fixed. We know what we hear on the radio. They're working hard. They're working hard. But I don't understand. I pay my bills. Why aren't they here? Your discomfort, your, your time is thrown in a tizzy and you get upset and you get mad and you take it out on others. That's the type of anger he's talking about here. When you're mad that somebody hasn't done something for you the way you think they should. And let's be frank about it. The majority of the reasons we get ticked is because our expectations weren't met. And so all of a sudden our comfort level, our, our, you know, our you know, hopes and plans, they get changed. We get mad at people because all of a sudden, without them being able to control the situation, their car broke down, therefore they don't show up when we're supposed to, and our, our plans are disrupted, not because they purposely did it, but because they disrupted my plans. And so we get mad because our schedule was hurt. Our comfort was upset. Our expectations weren't met. And he's saying, okay, here's where all of a sudden it's about you, it's about me, and that's what we're really all bothered by, and we want revenge. We want somebody to pay for this. We want something to be done. And he's saying this type of anger. When we are angry or remain angry without a just cause, a cause where there's an offense to the Lord or there's an offense and harm to other people. And in those cases, we just learn to need to let it go. Just let it go. About three weeks ago, I was coming on 78, coming back from visiting somebody north of town. And I'm driving down 78, <coughs> and I had an incident happen. I'm driving down the highway, and, and all of a sudden, I see coming over the meridian, I'm in the left lane passing somebody, and I see coming over the meridian a rock. It looked huge. It looked like a boulder. Okay, It was about this big. But at that moment, coming over and headed for my windshield, it looked really big. And so I couldn't swerve, couldn't do anything, and hit my windshield and hit it hard glass shattered. Uh, I'm going down the road and the windshield stayed intact except for a spot at the bottom of the windshield about this big. And it didn't, it perforated it but not all the way through. But all the glass on the inside of the window started flying in the inside. I had shards all over me in my tuft. I mean that's bad. When it's in my tuft. And when I cleaned the car there were shards of glass all the way back in the back windowsill. So it flew all over. And so the window was, the window cracked all over, stayed intact, got home and got it taken care of. 
And so my first reaction was, I wonder who did what to cause this rock to come over. There was no overpass. So it wasn't like, you know, thinking even that somebody threw a rock over. But the first thought was, I wonder where it came from. Obviously. You know, did somebody drop some gravel truck, some truck kick something up, whatever happened? I don't know. Choice I had was to pull over at the moment and try to chase the oncoming, the opposite traffic, you know, down and get somebody to pay for my window. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. To be upset, it's not going to happen. It's, I've, I've had my fair share of auto accidents. For four years in a row, I totaled a car every February in the first years of our being in this ministry. And so we've gone through a number of series of auto accidents, and a couple of those were drunken drivers hitting us and totaling the car. No injuries, but the cars were totaled. I remember one of the cases that one of the cars I was coming back from school at the time, I was still taking seminary classes, and coming back, and some guy came and sideswiped me, pulled through traffic when he shouldn't have, and hit me down in the Allentown area. And I limped the car home and found out afterwards the guy had no insurance. So he has no insurance on his car. He's driving illegally. Here's my decision. Should I stay mad at that guy and angry that he did this and he hit my car and eventually got totaled? Or, you know, what do I do? What do I do? Do I try to squeeze blood out of a turnip and go after this guy who doesn't have insurance, couldn't afford insurance? He was driving somebody else's car anyway. And so what do we do? Do you seek after the guy to make him pay when he's got nothing to pay with? That's why he never had insurance in the first place. You know, the, his friend didn't and he didn't. Or do you just say, well, listen, I can drive around with the dent in my car and just keep on driving and hope that someday it's going to be taken care of and remain angry and remain limping through life with a car that's dented. Or you just say, buck it up and pay for it. Get it repaired and get on with life. There are some people who are spiritually uninsured. They don't have Christ in their life. What do we expect them to do when it comes to making restitution? What do we expect them to do when it, when it comes to paying damage to what they cause us? To come and to ask for forgiveness. They don't, some of them don't understand that. They don't live in that realm. And there are some times in our life we just say, hey, wait a minute, I can't do anything. You know, that rock came and smashed my window. I'm going to pay for it. I just have to. I just need to move on. I can't keep on driving this car the way it is and going through life with a shattered window. It's got to be taken care of. There are a lot of issues in our life that that's the way it is. Certain things happen. It's nobody's fault. Certain things happen, and if it is their fault, they don't have the wherewithal to deal with it. You just have to decide, deal with the dent and move on. What Jesus is saying, don't hang on to the anger. Don't hang on, move on. If it is all possible, what you need to do is you need to seek reconciliation. Now that's where some people get, do wrong here. It is wrong to hang on to our anger. It is wrong to remain angry and refuse any reconciliation. Look how he says it. He says, okay, you're angry without a cause. And he goes on and he says, and then he's going on, he's talking about if you, verse 23 and 24, if you know there's a problem, deal with it. Just deal with it right away. He's going to emphasize the idea, get it done, take care of it. But there are some people who will not seek reconciliation. There are some folk, when we did the uh, series just a few weeks ago, and we talked about that idea 
about how individuals and sometimes families get all upset about furniture and different things when, from a parent or from a grandparent and then, then it doesn't get passed on the way it should. Several of you came and said, that's what's happening in my family. It happened years ago and some of our brothers and sisters, we still don't talk over furniture, over, over jewelry, or over some, some issue. The point is, remaining angry and refusing to seek some type of reconciliation, that's wrong. That is wrong. That the idea of, of holding a grudge. Let me see if I can illustrate it this way. There's an article that I read that this fellow is writing and he's talking and he's making a comparison about the deadly poison of a rattlesnake with the deadly poison of offenses that you don't let go. He starts off this way, tingling skin. He says, sweating, numbness, severe headache, dizziness, blurred vision, rapid heartbeat, difficulty breathing, intense pain. These are symptoms of a poisonous snake bite that, if left untreated, can lead to death. It takes less than 0.5 seconds for a snake to strike and bite its prey. That is faster than the human eye can see the danger and the brain process it, let alone react. Reaction to the danger takes another full second for most people, which means you can become a victim of a snake's deadly venom before you even know it. The same can be said, he says, about that idea of a grudge. A snake's razor-sharp fangs only leave two tiny pricks on the skin. It is through those hollow teeth, however, that powerful muscles in its head pump the venom directly into the victim's bloodstream. The immediate effects of a snake bite can be relatively minor, swelling, redness, slight irritation. But over time, sometimes long periods of time, symptoms become more life-threatening and left untreated, toxins have severe effects on bodily functions and can turn fatal. The same can be said about holding a grudge. The offense can be sudden and the ill will that results from it can run really really deep. Maybe your friend forgot to call saying that she would pick you up but she came late. Maybe a sibling borrowed your favorite sweater and brought it back with a stain on it. Maybe your roommate talked too loudly on the phone when you were trying to study. Maybe you weren't scheduled to sing or play as you often used to or want to be. Maybe someone ignored you. Or maybe somebody told a joke about you. Maybe your parents forgot your birthday. Or maybe that they didn't show up for your game or play and that really bothered you. The list could go on and on and on. If not addressed, this wound on a relationship becomes red and starts to swell. Soon the poison begins to take over. Similar to how snakes' venomous neurotoxins block brain function, your thinking can become un unreasonable when you have a grudge. This can cause almost anything a person does to drive you up the wall. In the same way, myotoxins and snake venom restrict the muscles or actions of a victim. Your relationship with the person who offended you can become, can become restricted as his actions may cause you to choose to spend less time with him. Finally, similar to the danger of the hemotoxins on your heart, your love, your outgoing concern for that person can break down and eventually be destroyed. Before you know it, you fall victim of holding a grudge. Once the poison of a grudge finally takes full effect, Satan, that old serpent, can easily overtake you. Holding a grudge can have deadly effects on your character and relationships. Hatred, jealousy, and unforgiving attitude can be the consequences as the deadly venom spreads and overtakes our interactions with other people. And it happens. It happens in homes. It happens in churches. And it's a shame. You and I need to live above that. We need to be individuals who say what we're going to do is we're not going to let our anger arise and to stay if there isn't a biblical cause. We're not going to let our anger hold us back from reconciling with somebody. We're not going to let our anger 
you know, be the case that all of a sudden we're upset with somebody who's upset with us. We don't know why they're upset, but they haven't talked to us, so we're not going to do anything. We're not going to reach out to them. They've acted different towards us of late. Well, wait a minute. Jesus says, if you come and realize that somebody has ought against you, they've avoided you, they've not talked to you, you need to go to them. You don't respond in anger without knowing what's going on. It could be that you are totally misreading the situation. It could be that maybe they have misunderstood something. Maybe they've heard something that somebody else gossiped about and that's caused a problem that's untrue. And you don't deserve and don't need to get upset with them and retaliate when you don't even know the full circumstances. That's when anger is wrong. So there's a third thought that comes here. Such anger often reveals itself in attacks upon others. You say, well, I'm not angry. Well, then examine this text. Notice what he says. Jesus is saying people typically do this. When they are angry with somebody, all of a sudden they're mad at them and they want to attack. He uses at the beginning of this story, he says, okay, I, he says, you know that murder is wrong. He says, well, I'm going to tell you another type of spiritual murder is wrong. That is trying to hurt somebody, trying to make them feel the pain that you feel, that it results in some type of an attack, where it results in this text, he's starting off with murder. And he says that happens where some people, that they want to get back, they want to seek revenge, they want their spouse to hurt, they want their parent to hurt, they want their brother and sister to hurt, they want somebody else in church to know the hurt that they've experienced. And it causes them to just harbor that grudge, that anger. There's a guy, his name is, um, let me see if I say, I'll say it wrong if I don't get it here, just double check. He's out of the state of, uh, of Wisconsin. He's in Milwaukee. His name is Matthew Munshaw. Matthew was an individual who he held grudges. That, that these grudges, they, they were there for a long period of time. And so eventually it just got the best of him. He got arrested for what he did to several different people. Well, the first person that he, he flipped out one day and he went after this one fella who had gotten him fired from a grocery store 10 years earlier. That this 75-year-old man, he, he remembered him, he drove to his house and he spray-painted all over this elder gentleman's house all kinds of vulgarity, all kinds of dirty pictures, spray-painted the, the walls and the windows and then he left that place and went to another man's place. The other man he's been mad at for five years. He and his girlfriend, this Matthew and his girlfriend, had gotten into a squabble and he hit her in a parking lot at a Walmart store. This other fella came up and defended his girlfriend and made him leave. He never forgot that. So these years later he goes to this guy's house and he doesn't have enough spray paint to do everything, so instead he just slashes the tires. He takes all the man's potted plants and throws them in the hot tub. From there, he goes to another person's house, a lady who lived down the street. He didn't have any more spray paint. She didn't have cars out, you know, or, or didn't have, uh, uh, he didn't have his knife anymore to be able to slash the tires. He dropped it. So he decided what he would do to her is take... Um, um, what do you call it, paint dissolver, and poured it all over her two brand new cars. The reason that he did that to her is she had cut him off in traffic two months earlier. So this fella holds this grudge and goes on this crazy binge of attacking people. Now that's an extreme case. And, that's the, you know, and he deserved to be in jail. He needed some help. But is it as bizarre when Christians go and attack other Christians? When Christians get mad and they do something so silly as they leave a church. They pull their kids 
out of ministry because they're mad at somebody else. They, they do these bizarre things that they, you know, they're going to, you know, just try to strike out and they in, in, in the inevitably they don't hurt the other person, they hurt themselves. There's two neighbors that live in Munich, Germany that they are known for probably the worst feud in the last few years. They got up, they, they had adjoining properties and they had it in, this, in the suburb of Munich and it started over an elderberry tree that some one of them put a tree and the other one didn't like it and that was the first lawsuit that was made over 14 years. Then it escalated from there. Between the lawsuits, what they did is they built, one of them built a 12-foot high cement wall between their properties. It got to the point they put barbed wire on top of the cement wall. The neighbor responded on the other side by putting huge lights that he could shine at night towards the other one's house. They responded by putting speakers up and blaring music. It got to the point that what they did is they flooded each other's yards. They planted in each other's gardens all kinds of weeds and po- you know, like poison ivy and things of that sort. They broke each other's windows. It got so silly and so inane that it just kept on escalating and it still hasn't been resolved. The worst part about it, they live in a duplex. Okay. But they are just so fixed, fixated on trying to get back at somebody else. Jesus is saying, please don't get involved with that type of stuff. Don't get involved with the verbal attacks. He says in this passage that some people will turn to their friends, they'll turn to family, and they'll call them racha, empty-headed, fool. They'll, they'll attack their character, their Christian walk with God. He says these, these attacks are wrong. This face-to-face attack, the behind-the-back attacks, it's wrong. The verbal sparring is wrong, he says. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't go home and do the verbal sparring against other people's. Don't go and get your, your friends together and you talk about that other kid in the youth group or in the young adults thing and you just, you lamb blast them. He says it's wrong. It's wrong. Number four, the thought that stands out in the text is this. Such anger, Jesus says, that type of anger that is attacking people, that type of anger that won't seek reconciliation, that type of anger that even if you know somebody has a problem, you refuse because of your prideful anger to get it right, he says, this deserves chastisement. In my opinion, Jesus says, this deserves some type of severe discipline. Look what he says in the text. In the text, he says, in both times, he talks about in verse 21, he says, you're in danger of judgment if you kill somebody. Then he says, if you say raka, you're angry without a cause, in verse 22, you're in danger of the judgment. It's the same words. You deserve some type of judgment, he says. And he goes on, he says, you're in danger of the council. You're in danger of Gehenna. When he, what he's doing is he's spelling it out. He's saying you deserve civil, social, and ecclesiastical discipline. The ecclesiastical church. He's saying somebody who is involved with this, who's attacking family and friends and fellow believers, he says that individual, they deserve a really good spanking socially, politically, as well as spiritually. And he's very blunt about it. He's very pointed. This is a problem. And he's talking to his disciples, those who claim to be his disciples, says, you've got to stop this. You've got to stop this. You cannot justify it in any way, shape, or form. I'm telling you, Jesus says, this verbal attacks, these assaults, this hanging on to your, to your anger, this is like spiritual murder. And it's wrong. 
And he says, and it's divisive. It's got to stop. Number five, such anger is atypical, not typical, of a truly born-again person's life. How do I know that? Because he makes the comment, you're in danger of Gehenna. Gehenna is a word for hell. Gehenna is the idea, the picture of, of the dump that's perpetually burning where the, where the, um, where the you know, worm dieth not in that whole picture. And he's basically saying somebody who acts this way, they are not, they are not living like they, they are heaven bound. They are not living in the sense that they are exercising true love. And Jesus is going to make that issue. That you've got to love one another and love one another. Not to the point that says you don't challenge one another when there's something wrong. Not to the point like Paul. When he saw that Peter would get up from the meal at the church fellowship, eating with a group of Gentiles, Paul, uh, Peter gets up, and when he sees Jewish friends walks in, and he goes to the other side of the room and avoids talking to the Gentiles. That really irked Paul. Paul goes to Peter and confronts him face to face in front of everybody and says, what you have just shown is prejudice. And he challenges him and he points out that type of righteous indignation is appropriate. To say what you have done in a public sense has set a terrible example. you got to stop it. That's not what Jesus is talking about in this text. Jesus is talking about the type of anger that is all about you and me, our hurts, our attitudes, not sinful conduct, but irritations to us, discomfort to us, fouling up our schedule, not, not agreeing with me 100%. And he's saying that's wrong. Not getting my way when I'm with friends or others and they don't, they don't do things the way I want them to do the things and then getting really ticked about it. He's saying that is not typical of a truly born-again person's life. That typifies somebody who is unsaved. That shouldn't be in your and my life. That shouldn't be there at all. Let's do number six. It is our spiritual responsibility to make some attempt at reconciliation. He says in the text, and very clearly, he says, if you know you come to worship and you come to the altar and you remember your brother has a problem with you, leave your gift before the altar, go your way, first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. What he is saying is really strong terminology. He is saying, this is my expectation of you. My expectation my responsibility I'm laying upon you who are born again is this. You need to be open to reconciliation if at all possible. You need to be open to the reconciliation. You have got to go. You've got to try. Now do we understand there are some cases where reconciliation isn't happening? Yes. But he's saying this is your duty. You've got to be open to it. Number two, you need to be willing to make the first step. You've got to be the one who's mature, who is saying, I'm going to follow Christ and I am going to be the one to make the first step to try to reconcile, not wait for the other person. If you know somebody has an odd against you, you go. You try to reconcile, he says. You don't wait for them. Third thought, third idea here. You do it with speed and without delay. You stop the procrastination. You stop saying, we'll deal with it later. He says, no. If you come to worship and you realize that there's a problem between a family member. You realize there's a problem between you know, somebody in your church family. You realize there's a problem with somebody that you claim to have a friendship with, and it's there. He says, you leave your gift. You go and deal with it. You don't make an excuse. You don't say it's an inconvenient time. You make the time to reconcile. And for the Jewish people that he's talking to, this was big-time stuff. You leave your gift. You get reconciled before you do the worship. Tremendously challenging thought. 
that you do it immediately. You don't postpone. You go and you seek reconciliation. In fact, he makes it clear that whatever it costs, whatever the pressure, you do, you do it. You go and make... Now, remember, he's talking to Galilean Jews. Let's, let's put this in its full frame. He's talking to Galilean Jews. And he's saying, you go down to the worship center and there you are at the worship center and you're going to lay a gift at the altar. There is only one altar in all of of Israel at the time that Jesus is talking. The only altar is located in Jerusalem. The Jewish people were obligated to go two to three times a year and to make their sacrifice. Is he saying, which makes perfect sense, when you make your pilgrimage and you take your week-long trip that gets you down to Jerusalem and while you're there, you're at the temple, God brings to your mind that you and Uncle Joe have a problem and you have yet to resolve. You don't continue sacrificing. You go all the way back to Galilee, which would be a couple days trip at least. Then you make reconciliation and then you come back. And he says, whatever the cost, whatever the effort, you go out of your way, you get this thing right. You don't put it off. You don't hide it. You don't pretend it's not there when in your heart you know that there's an issue, you deal with the issue. And then he makes this final comment is, or will make the comment, remember this, that your ability or your inability or your desire or lack of desire to reconcile, it'll affect your relationship with God Almighty. That leads me to the point number seven on your notes. Point number seven is, seven is this. Failure to attempt reconciliation is going to block worship. It's going to block your walk with God. It's going to be a very serious offense to Christ. I don't know about you. I have some of these, some of these small engines, you know, my lawnmower. Uh, when we got this house, they left a snowblower there. And I didn't know how, I never had a snowblower before. And I didn't know how the snowblower worked last winter. And we had that one storm and it was like, okay, I got to get a, you know, I'm really, I've arrived. I got a snowblower. I don't know how to use it. So I got out there and I'm pulling and I'm pulling and I'm pulling. And the snowblower wasn't starting, wasn't starting, wasn't starting. And it's like, great, they left me a snowblower that doesn't work. You know, what a deal. But they had assured me it worked. So I asked one of these uh, you know, experts around here and they said, well, you've got to make sure that you turn on the gas. What do you mean you turn on the gas? Well, there's a little switch sometimes that you've got to flip. It's blocked. You know, and you've got to flip the, you know, the power button that's there. So once you, once you open up the gas, once you flip you know, the, the shutoff switch, it's amazing how quickly this thing can start. Yeah. And it, it was just knowing that it's there and getting it open, it's fine. Some of us have the gas blocked. We've got this shutoff switch because we're not willing to reconcile and that means we're shut off in real communion with God. Oh, no, 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 I'm right with God. You can't be. Jesus says, if you are not right with others, you're not right with God. Well, my, my spat between my wife and I, it, it, you, know, you know, she'll get over it after a few days. That's not what this verse tells you to, to do. It says, husband, you go home and you make reconciliation, ASAP. Well, the, the problem that we have between, you know, parent and child, you know, they, uh, we'll, ju- we'll just pretend... And, and after a week or so, we'll start talking again. That's not what this text tells you to do. It says you're blocked between you and God right now until you reconcile this thing. This block that you have between some relative that you have refused to reconcile, you have refused to deal with something because you are mad at what happened when you were teenagers. 
that they took your outfit or they drove your car or they did something and you're holding it. He says, your fellowship with God is tainted. You got something blocked in your life. You got to deal with it. The idea that you're upset with somebody in the fellowship of this church and you say, well, I'll just sit at another part of the auditorium and not talk to them, it doesn't work spiritually. You have blocked your fellowship with the Lord according to this text. And he's very clear. Jesus uses an illustration that I don't think we get because we're not back in those days. He says, he goes on, he says, listen, you better agree with your adversary quickly. You get this taken care of. And he's talking about, he says, agree quickly while you are in the way. Get the thing resolved, even when you're walking, even on your, on your way to worship or wherever. Lest at any time the adversary deliver you to the judge, and the judge deliver you to an officer, and you get cast into pres- prison, and you stay there until the uttermost farthing has been paid. What he's talking about, what he's using as an illustration is called a debtor's prison. We don't have them here today. We have credit agencies. We have, you know, you can make more bills. Back in Bible days, they had prisons that would only hold prisoners for a short time. The criminals were executed or they were kept in prison and and they were then beaten and they weren't kept. The ones who were held long term were debtors. They were the ones who, who stayed in prison for a long time until they paid the debt. And so what they have are these debtor prisons, the same place, same type of jail. And what they did is they would stay there for an extended period of time. It was considered such a heinous form of punishment that the Roman government banned them during periods of time in history. You and I are mistaken if we say, well, these, had, these have been around during the time, period of Christ all along. That's not true. Many of the societies said we don't want those because people languish in prison. And not only do they languish in prison, so does their family. And it just it perpetuates the debt problem. So it became an illegal form of punishment in much of the Mediterranean world during that period of time. In fact, they didn't use them. The Jews didn't want them. The Jews considered this to be a form of punishment that was typical of the heathen world. And it was so immoral that they basically didn't use debtor prisons. So Jesus is using an illustration of something that wasn't common, commonly used in his society to show how really bad this is when you don't reconcile with somebody. He is saying when you refuse to reconcile, it's like you're going to be put into debtor's prison. Something that was really, really, really bad. So bad that we don't even want him around. And so his illustration is basically saying this. There's a bad and horrible, horrible consequence to not reconciling. You are basically, if you don't reconcile, what he is saying is you're going to be taken out of spiritual circulation. You're going to be put on, from God's point of view, you're going to be put in this shelf and not used. This is pretty serious stuff. This is pretty pointed comments that Jesus is making. This idea of holding a grudge, remaining angry, or then going and talking to other people and not resolving the conflict between you and the person with whom the conflict is, he says, this is huge. This is huge. The worst form of punishment that I can think of besides hell, he says, this is it. A debtor's prison, this is what I'm going to do to you spiritually. So you have this thought that Jesus is saying it's a serious offense not to reconcile, not to attempt reconciliation, not to apologize, not to find some agreement. Basically, here's what he's saying. The bottom line goes this way. He has told us in this text, 
you and I to avoid acting and speaking in uncontrolled anger. That is what we're called to do. Is we're not supposed to be given into uncontrolled anger. If we do, we ask for forgiveness. But this is to be an area that we really strive to avoid. Number two, he has basically said this. You and I are called to personally seek to resolve conflicts we may have with family, friends, loved ones, co-workers, you name it. That's what he's calling us to. He is basically saying this, that we need to realize failure to try to reconcile is a great offense in the mind and heart of God. So you have to ask yourself where you're at. You have to ask yourself, okay, what am I doing in this area? Are you upset with somebody for no good reason? They wore the same outfit that you wore. How dare them? They, they took your parking spot. How dare them? Yeah, they, they, they did something so bad, like they just walked past you and they didn't say anything to you because they were looking down and responding to a text, but they didn't notice you. And how dare them do that to me? Ask yourself this. Are you holding on to your hurts way too long? Way too long. Are you an individual that says, I am willing to forgive. I'm more than willing to, give, to work with them. Do you know of somebody who's basically avoided you? And they haven't, they haven't talked to you. They have given you the cold shoulder. Have you gone to them and said, hey, listen, is there a problem? Is it just that we're, we're getting different associations, friendships, different ministries, different activities, different busyness? Or is there an offense? Have you taken it to try to find out what the deal is? Have you genuinely tried to reconcile with somebody who's upset you? Are you an individual who instead you have gone and you have told others, told the family, told you know, others around you that you know about all the evils and all the, the you know, terrible, terrible, terrible way that these people treat you? Are you an individual who you are waiting for that other person to make the first move? He says, no, no, no. The mature individual says, I'm going to go and deal with it. It may be difficult, but we're going to deal with it. Are you one who is fostering a grudge? I remember this. I remember growing up as a teen. Saturday evenings, I remember the meal. It was chilly. Mom would put the pot on the, t- on the stove early afternoon, and it would simmer all day long. And I thought that that was some of the best chili in the world because it just was warm and kind of just... Some of you are thinking this simmering, this holding on to a grudge, it feels so good. It tastes so good to just hang on to it. It's wrong. It isn't a delightful stew. It is a violation of the Word of God. How do you say you're right with God if you know that you've got angst towards family members? How do you do that? God says it's an impossibility. How do you expect to take communion tonight? If you're angry with somebody and you've not reconciled, how are you going to do that? He says when it comes to communion that we're supposed to come and worship in in a worthy fashion and not take it in an unworthy fashion. Unworthy would be not only disrespect to him by how we act, but aren't we disrespecting Jesus if we don't listen to his words when he says, leave the gift and be reconciled? He's telling us and calling us in this type of service to forgive as he has forgiven, to love as he has loved. And that means we're supposed to make sure we're right with one another. We're going to get ready for communion. But before we do that, make sure you're right with God. 
And that means as well, you've got to be right with others. Father, I pray that you bless this service as we move on. As the kids come back, use this as a time to help us, to mature us, to grow us, and help us to have sweet fellowship with you, knowing that we have sweet fellowship with others. Amen.